Welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepan Carr. Hi, I'm Dr. Ravinder Rindala. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. So Dr. Kataria, welcome back on our podcast. Uh, we're really excited for you to join us again because you have a lot of information to share with us and our listeners about how to really um, start and open a dry eye practice, kind of a step-by-step guide, if you will. Um, so yeah, we're really excited to learn more about you. And I think Alex, you can start. All right. Well, what influenced you to begin a dry eye practice? So the current practice that I'm in, I do a lot of medical glaucoma and these patients were for about three years complaining about the side effects of their medications. And I, when I first joined the practice, I wasn't very passionate about dry eye and I found it more of a nuisance if I could just be very candid. Um, and throughout that period, I just learned a lot and I educated myself. I started listening to some lectures and really wanted to help these patients feel better. You know, once you have the glaucoma under control on topical medications, there's, there's other pieces that need to be addressed. And so that's what really motivated me to get going with dry eye. And it's been very rewarding so far. So to get into more detail about what you were talking about, let's talk about the essentials for a dry eye practice. What are the essential tests that one should perform for a dry eye evaluation? Yeah, so I think uh, for dry eye, we essentially have all of the equipment that is absolutely necessary in our primary care clinics. I would say that you need your sit lamp exam, of course, you need your uh, microscope and you want to do look, lift, push, pull. So you want to look externally at the eyelids how do they sit opposed to each other is any exposure tropion and tropion etc um and then you want to lift the eyelids you know look underneath the eyelid at the superior bulbar conjunctiva um to look for you know like slk um and and other conditions that could be maybe pointing what towards systemic conditions uh such as thyroid eye disease um, and then you want to push on the on the glands and understand the quantity and the quality of the mybum that's being released. Look at the tear lake, understand if there's aqueous deficient component as well. And then you do want to pull on the eyelids to understand if there's any lid laxity. Um, and you know that there are conditions like floppy eyelid syndrome, for example, that can masquerade right as an OSD and ocular surface disease. And then you have your um, fluorescein strip, so that's easy and and. To anybody listening, I usually recommend doing a strip instead of flooding the tear film or the tear lake with the binoxinate. So I like to just um, wet the strip a little bit with your eye wash um, and then just very gently dab onto the tear film with the strip so that you're not overwhelming it um, and and overwhelming your results, you know? Um, So those are the two big things and then pictures. And I think the biggest question I get uh, whenever I lecture about this is, you know, how do I take pictures without having to invest $30,000, $40,000 into a fancy software that hooks up to my slit lamp and whatnot? And what I would recommend is just go on Amazon and get a mount for your phone that attaches to the slit lamp and you can take pictures, you know, you, you can align your phone up to the oculus. And I'm sure we've all done this in the clinic, right? Where you take your phone and you're, you're kind of 
trembling and you're trying to get the focus yeah. <laughs> it's really frustrating right so you just amount to help you do that to stabilize you um then you can upload those pictures and into the patient chart and then you can talk to your patient using that as a patient education tool and when patients see those pictures the first thing is oh my god is that my eye oh my gosh that's so gross or whatever yeah. reaction <laughs> they have that's so cool um and it just really helps me gain their compliance when i have a picture to show them and then you can also allow that progression to be monitored and documented right like you can show them hey you had this amount of spk on your cornea and you did this treatment and now you have a little bit less so we're moving in the right direction um a question i'll get often is you know do i really need myography right to start and i appreciate that that can be costly to a clinic and i would say that you don't need it is it nice to have yes absolutely as you're growing but i think um having those three essentials some way to take pictures the fluorescein strip and the slit lamp you really have everything you need to get going yeah i agree i think i'm even looking for um a device that can hold my phone up because i don't have one right now and you're so right. My hand, cause you have to really zoom in on that ocular and one little movement. And I'm like, Oh, okay. It's just a black picture now. Sorry. Maybe we'll try it next time. Yeah. And, it can, and then the lighting can also yeah, yeah. throw you off. And it's it, I, sometimes you feel like you, you need more hands, right? You're like yeah. to the patient. Can you hold your own eyelid? Because <laughs> yeah. I know it's like sometimes taking the picture is like another 30 minutes of the exam yeah. and you're like, I'm sorry, I need hours for each patient. So they will be more compliant with what I'm trying to manage here. But pictures are great because like what Amrit was saying with the blepharitis, a lot of people can't see that on their own lashes. So when you show that picture, like that zoomed in picture, they're like, oh, I didn't even like, what is that on my lashes? Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah. So I think pictures are the best, best thing that we can do to kind of show yeah. patients what they need to do. I usually think don't breathe as I'm doing this. As yeah. I'm take <laughs> yeah. that picture, I'm like, don't breathe. It, no one move. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, Dr. Kataria, I mean, you just basically answered our next question because, you know, you mentioned that some of those essential pieces <laughs> of equipment for dry eye management um, now, in your opinion, are there any advanced dry eye equipment that you'd recommend eye care professionals to obtain maybe as, as their goal down the line as their dry eye practice grows? Yes, I think there are so many fantastic technologies that are available to us as eye care practitioners now. Um, so we have the mybography, which I mentioned very briefly, and imaging the meibomian glands, again, is such a powerful educational tool for our patients. And um, even, you know, using a stock card to help them understand where they fall. I mean, you know, when you show a picture to the patient of their meibomian glands, they can tell something's wrong when they can see patches of gray and atrophy where those glands are no longer, but it's a very ambiguous concept. But then when they can compare that directly to a stock card, and then you can say, okay, you fall into this category, it really just elevates that patient education so much more. Yeah. I think um, corneal topography can be very mm -hmm. helpful to understand how stable that tear film is, especially on the blink, 
which then brings me to the next um, and aberrations, of course, right? Um, and that that can be helpful in your pre-surgical and your post-surgical patients as well. Pre-surgical, um, when you're planning um, for, you know, whether it's a premium cataract surgery or whether it's a refractive surgery, and then post, because when you're trying to really figure out are these aberrations or is this subjective decline in the patient's vision due to a true refraction or mm-hmm. is this due to an unstable tear film um, and you know tear meniscus height can be helpful especially in those um, aqueous deficient patients and a lot of these technologies are now combined so we use the luminous anteris which allows us to do that mybography and topography and the tear meniscus height and uh, pictures for bulbar hyperemia just to again educate the patient that this is how red the eyes are right so when the patients understand that their eyes are red and you can tell them or you know your eyes are inflamed this is an inflammation and we know that dry eye disease is an inflammatory condition. So that helps us to track and is another way to document that. Um, so I think those can be very helpful. Point of care testing. Uh, I know that there is some controversy here. Um, TIOS molarity testing, testing excuse me, can be very helpful. Um, and that's in both aqueous deficient and in neurooperative dry eye disease patients. And I, I really love MMP9 testing. I think that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. And when patients come in, I also use that as an educational tool. And I'll ask them, uh, sorry, excuse me, patients will ask me rather, you know, oh, was my testing good today? Was it positive or was it negative? And that's when we have an idea of whether we've addressed that inflammatory component. Um, so there's, and then, you know, we have sit lamp. Um, imaging modalities, you know, like a firefly set and for example, that has all of these very cool um, ability to image um, the the anterior segment already built in, so it doesn't have to be an external software. Um, so there's there's a lot of really helpful technology. I think it's really easy to get caught up, right? I think that sometimes we you know talk to our friends and our colleagues and in our network, and they're buying all these very expensive fancy equipment. Mm-hmm. And I think it just gives this perception that we need that in order to manage dry eye when really, I I don't think that's the case. Yeah. I find that sometimes it's, it's hard to, when, you know, you're just starting out in a practice very early and, you know, like you will save up eventually if you have a goal to purchase higher end equipment, but it gets really hard because as the consumer, you know, a lot of patients tend to gravitate maybe towards those practices that look like they have all the shiny new like equipment. Um, how can you really, I guess, be more confident in selling your practice and skills or get, you know, to that patient and getting them in your chair? If there's, you know, a practice across the street who has you know, mybography and, and topography and all these fancy, shiny gadgets in their office, um, you know, because I can imagine that's very intimidating for some ODs that are just starting out. Do you have any tips for those people? Yeah, I think that's a really great question and so clinically applicable. And I mm-hmm. think the biggest thing is that patient education piece. And, you know, right before um, we hit record here, we were talking about patient education videos. And that's something that we can very easily do without fancy gadgets. So yeah. we can record patient testimonials, we can, with their permission and whatnot, and we can even record educational videos of ourselves and we can play those in the exam room. Um, and really, you know, you can elevate your practice 
by providing that really fantastic education for the patient. And then of course it comes down to your protocol as well. So what sort of, you know, algorithm, what protocol um, for, for, for diagnostic and then also for treatment are you um, implementing and is that helpful for the patient, right? Mm-hmm. So oftentimes we have access to a lot of testing and so we want to run all of that testing on the patient. But I would encourage practitioners to think about how helpful is that testing? Is that yep. is this data changing something in your treatment plan? Or is this you know, giving you as the practitioner clarity on how to change your treatment plan so that the patient's going to benefit? And if it's not changing your treatment plan, I question the value of it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's really going to help a lot of people because I think as new grads too, we already feel intimidated <laughs> by the established ODs that are already out there. So that really helps, gives us, um, you know, it gives us a little bit more of a confidence boost to yeah, really and, and put I, ourselves out there. I think there's also a really huge opportunity for co-management. You know, I think that if you're a new grad and you're very interested in getting into the dry eye space, but you don't have all the, the, the instrumentation and whatnot that you need, you know, I think, again, you can use the, the, the necessities that I mentioned earlier, and you can diagnose this patient um, mm-hmm. to the best of your ability and open up a co-management relationship with a practitioner in your area. Mm-hmm. Um, and that not only helps the patient, obviously, but because it opens the door to, you know, more treatment options for the patient, but it also allows you to build your network um, mm-hmm. and allows you to learn as a new grad from somebody who's already doing it out in the field and how is that working? And, and, and you can kind of learn from them if they're willing to, 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 to help you. Um, and so I think with dry eye, and especially when we get into talking about the in-office treatments, I think there's huge opportunity for co-management between one OD and another OD, which we, in, at least in my geographical area, I think we, we struggle with that quite a bit. It's a huge challenge for us. And um, I think dry eye is a space where optometrists can really um, uh, you know, open up doors of communication with each other. Yeah. What steps can one take to build a referral base for their dry eye practice? Oh yeah. Perfect. Segue. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You're just too good at this, Dr. Katari. We actually had to push (laughs) that question all the way up. (laughs) Yeah. Amrit's over here, like moving things around. I'm like, where are we at? Okay. I think I got it. Wow, this is a whole production happening. When you see our eyes darting around, <laughs> yeah. you're like, oh, something's changing. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but yeah. So referrals. Um, so so great, great question because I think you know, when you when you bring in new, when you bring in a new clinic or a new niche into your practice, or you bring in new instrumentation, you want this to be successful and you want it to be profitable, right? So um, how do you get the word out there? Well, I think the first thing is start with your friends. I think that's the easiest thing to do. Um, and so outside of, outside of being a new grad, I think, you know, if you're established in the area and you have friends, optometrists and or ophthalmologists who might not necessarily be interested in dry eye the way that you are or as passionate about it, because let's face it, not everyone's passionate about dry eye and that's completely okay, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, you can, 
talk, just have a conversation, a very candid conversation. This is what I'm implementing in my clinic. Um, this is the instrumentation that I have. And I would really love if we can open up a co-management relationship, you know, um, and I'm sure that there are patients that you might not necessarily feel comfortable with that X person down the road has more specialization in. And that's kind of how you build that co-management relationship. I would start there, start with your friends um, in the eye care world, get the word out. Uh, you can certainly use social media um, to gain referrals and that's patients. You know, word of mouth is a fantastic way of getting referrals. We actually in my clinic haven't done a ton of marketing for myself or the clinic itself. Um, but patients will come in and say, I spoke to my friend at church and she said that you really helped her dry eye and now I'm coming to you seeking the same solutions. So word of mouth through patients can be very helpful. Um, also like your local community news channels, trying to get the word out there. And, you know, this is very similar for, you know, contact lenses and myopia yeah. control, you know, get, get, get your name out there in the community. Um, and then as we bring it back into kind of like the, the, the healthcare field, talk to your primary care doctors. Um, who are referring to you. So again, your friends, right? Um, the, the folks who you already have a relationship with and your rheumatologists in the area as well. Talk to them about what treatment options are available for patients who have Sjogren's, what you have, um, and, and let them know how that fits into their treatment plan. Um, and, and also, of course, your um, refractive centers, like your laser center, LASIK centers, your cataract surgeons, talk to them about what algorithms they're using for treating dry eye. What do they do for patients before they go in for surgery and how can you help them? Um, mm -hmm. and, and so I think those are great avenues to pursue depending on where you are in establishing your clinic. Yeah. I wonder how often, uh, rheumatologists are uh, referring to dry eye specialists and ODs who manage dry eye, because yeah, that I feel like they're almost their entire patient population should, you know, have an evaluation for dry eye, see what their risk is of severe dry eye disease, what their symptoms are. Um, so that's a great recommendation and yeah. the GPs too, like the primary care doctors. Exactly. I think there's huge opportunity. Like you said, all of those patients should be in your clinic and I yeah, completely agree Right. So, I, and, and I think um, it's just, it comes down to that education piece, just yeah. having a chat and having that FaceTime with them too. Yeah. I think family doctors is a huge one because they, you know, they might just be like, Hey, like I can refer you to an ophthalmologist or you just use artificial tears. And we all know there's so much more or many more treatments than artificial tears for dry eyes. So I think definitely talking to your family physician um, about setting up that relationship to, for them to refer patients over is a big, big, big one. It, that I found um, very interesting that you mentioned a lot of family doctors are probably mm -hmm. just giving artificial tears to patients. Well, you I meant really like, be, I thought like they'd just be like, oh, just go to shoppers or something and get these artificial tears. That too. Yeah, no, you're right. And, mm -hmm. and so that's where optometrists should really be stepping in. Mm -hmm. I mean, we should be stepping in for a lot of things in my opinion right now, but <laughs> <laughs> um, that's where we should be stepping in when you have a passion for dry eyes to talk to your local family doctors and be like, mm -hmm. this is why, you know, they should come see us for the options mm -hmm. of artificial tears and why each one is, you know, different and good for the patient and not just sending them over to get some, you know, artificial tears from the, the drugstore. 
So right. that's a good I mean, point. You could even educate them with the TFOS due to algorithm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you could talk about how artificial tears are just a component. Mm-hmm. And even then we have to, there's differences in what is contained in those artificial tears. And that's mm-hmm. not appropriate for every single patient. And we have the ability, we have the diagnostic equipment to figure out what products are best for which patients. Mm-hmm. So I agree, huge opportunity to educate them. Um, you are right though, uh, in certain settings, depending on insurances, like for example, at the VA, you can yeah. write a prescription for artificial yes. tears, right? Yeah. Um, I will say though, when patients don't bring them in, I've had a lot of family physicians writing for restasis. So oh. sometimes when they say prescription, they actually are referring to a true prescription mm. and not, you know, just a prescription eye drop that they're mistaking um, yeah. artificial tears. And so <laughs> that can become a little bit complicated because not every patient needs an immunomodulator, right? Mm. Again, so, and then again, there's another opportunity to educate those family um, physicians and talk to them about how we don't necessarily recommend immunomodulators as a first step, but it depends mm-hmm. on the severity. And there's no way that we can tell the severity just by symptoms. We have to look and we have to understand what type of dry wave to categorize it, right? So um, we do have a lot of work to do as a profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of products, um, what are some essential dry eye products to begin selling in your practice? Is it better to have multiple brands and a variety of products or focus on just one or two specific brands to work with? Yeah, that's a really good question because I had the same question when I was starting up too. Mm-hmm. It's very confusing. The market is confusing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I say that hypochlorous acid um, for your you know, staph blath is very essential in your practice Mm -hmm. and I love to do a hypochlorous acid because it doesn't have it's not a surfactant it doesn't have those preservatives um I had a lot of patients coming in when I was using surfactant cleansers uh with you know like a a dermatitis a contact dermatitis type reaction and so I just switched to hypochlorous acid for those patients I still do use tea tree oil cleansers for those patients who have a demodex component or demodex blepharitis. Um, I do love those ocular products for demodex as well. And so we do a mix kind of depending on the patient. And, and also there's a, a cost sensitivity factor in there as well. Um, and then I do like to do an at-home heat mask. And mm-hmm. as long as it has some fabric component where it's not one of these gel ones that you can you will use in the microwave and in the freezer there's lots of products out there and it's very confusing to the consumer right Mm -hmm. so um and and so as i talk about these you might notice that i'm essentially reciting the step one of the tfos deuce two right so your at-home hygiene Mm -hmm. um artificial tears of course dietary supplements are important and those Re-esterified triglyceride, omega-3 fatty acids, and so we sell those. And it's—I call those the big three. And Mm -hmm. if there's an MGD component and a staff component, and it's appropriate for the patient, I just tell my my staff member this patient needs the big three. And when they go out to the front, then uh, you know when they're checking out, they're receiving those products. Um, So that's I think very on a very basic level. I think that's a really good place to start. 
If you have patients who have nocturnal lagophthalmos or some sort of exposure keratitis, I think doing a moisture chamber goggle can be very helpful. And um, so we just added that very recently as well. If you wanted to expand your clinic and talk about cosmetics with patients, depending on your demographic and the demand, then I certainly think that there's room for adding in those eye safe beauty products that are available. There's a couple of brands that will come to mind when it comes to makeup removers and then also mm-hmm eye safe makeup, right? Um, So those are, I think, kind of very essential products that you might sell depending on where you want to take your dry eye clinic and also what services are you providing, right? I know Mm -hmm. a lot of eye doctors will, and optometrists will have, optometrists rather will have um, sunscreen available in their offices for sale. Mm -hmm. And they are, um, they have a, a cosmetic component with their IPL and an aesthetic component. You know, if they have somebody coming in doing aesthetic procedures like Botox and things like that, Um, so it really depends on how which direction you're taking your dry eye clinic in for the moisture goggles are there like any specific ones that you recommend just because I like I recommend that to patients but I never know which brand to recommend or you know which product line to recommend so I no financial disclosures I Mm -hmm. like doing the IECO okay um, see the 4.0 seals uh, I have them at home mm-hmm. and they are actually very comfortable. So when you okay. look at the pictures on Amazon and you can even direct your patients to Amazon if yeah. they're savvy. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, if you have enough of a demand, I would reach out to the company and see if maybe you can do like a drop ship or some system mm-hmm. that you can work out with them where your patients can get it faster than going yeah. off of Amazon. Okay. Um, but but the, the eye eco is very comfortable. There's different colors for patients who want the black versus the clear. And that's mm-hmm. actually really important. I didn't like the black ones very much. It made me oh. feel very claustrophobic. I didn't okay. expect that, but I liked to be able to see at least something to have like a mm-hmm. translucent view in mm-hmm. my room, like, you know, when I woke up. So these things, I, I don't think I would have thought about if I hadn't Mm -hmm. tried it myself, but that's Mm -hmm. one way I will go. Um, If you want to do a more cost-effective option, you might consider, you know, if a patient doesn't have a good lid seal, for example, um, you might consider just doing like a silk eye mask off of Amazon. Okay. And that way, you know, the way I explain it to patients is that because you don't have a good seal for your eyelids, you need a barrier. Um, mm-hmm. for that dry air kind of moving onto the surface and creating that desiccating stress. Because mm-hmm. a lot of patients, especially now, um, are using centralized heat systems. In the mm-hmm. summer, they're using you know ceiling fans or stand fans. And so having that constant stream of air, we all know, right, is very irritating mm-hmm. to the ocular surface overnight. And these patients are going to complain of problems when they wake up in the morning. Right. Um, but those are the two big uh, suggestions that I would have for someone who has an incomplete lid closure or an incomplete lid seal. Okay, cool. I want to tie in something and ask you this question. It kind of comes from the podcast episode we did with Dr. Maharaj, where, uh, he was talking about just the way we should be more confident in how we um, provide services and products to patients. This also kind of ties in with Dr. Vargo's episode with us just on how to sell for your patients, right? So, um, you know, I personally have quite a hard time convincing my patients to purchase the um, artificial tears and the masks and the lid scrubs that I have in my office because I'm right next to the pharmacy that has the refresh and the sustain and everything. Um, and my pricing 
is very similar to what's at the drugstore, but all my patients will still say, no, thanks. That's fine. I'm going to go see what's out there first. And then I'll try that. And then I'll come back to you. And I'm like, oh, what did I, you know, what can I say? Or what can, what can we say in our wording, or I guess our attitude um, to convince patients that these you know, these products might be a little bit more costly than what's out there, but they're really helpful and they're really important for their eye health. Yeah. I think that's a great question. And it's something that I've struggled with personally myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I agree with Dr. Maharaj and Dr. Vargo in the sense that you, as you're performing your dry eye consult, you do want to talk to the patient about what, where is their emotion, right? So where, what, what are they most struggling with? Well, how is this dry eye disease affecting their quality of life? Um, and I think that education right from the get-go and kind of repeating the same thing over and over again at every single visit can be very helpful, mm-hmm. despite how, help, how unhelpful you think you might be, right? Mm-hmm. Because you feel like a broken record that you're talking about, for example, omega-3s. You know, patients ask me all the time, why can't I just get the one from Costco? And I'll say, well, do you take it every day? And what kind of symptoms do you have? Do you have those fishy burps? And they'll say, yeah, but I just live with it. And I say, well, you don't have to live with that. Um, You know, there are better options. And not only that, you know, you, we, we have a product that is especially made for someone who has the condition that you have. Mm -hmm. And so by uh, investing in your, in your dry eye treatment, you know, and doing these things in the office, you can augment your results by the things that you're doing at home. Mm -hmm. And the way I tell them my language is that, you know, we're a team, we have to work together. I'm on your side Mm -hmm. and I only want to help you. So you tell me what you're struggling with the most, and that's what we're going to focus on. And so I think, you have to tap into that huge psychological component yeah. of dry eye disease. There is, you know, we, I think, um, we focus a lot as practitioners on the whole, on the studies and the results and, and the quality of life piece is something that I think we're still really largely understanding. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of this data coming out of the pandemic where patients are complaining that they're actually unhappy because of the way that their eyes feel. I think that's huge. Happiness Mm-hmm. Um, to, 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 for somebody to verbalize that they're unhappy or that they're anxious or fearful of losing their vision because of the way that their eyes feel, I think has a huge impact on a patient's quality of life. And that's what we have to understand. So the first few visits, I'm not actually talking a lot. I'm doing a lot of listening and mm-hmm. I'm taking notes and I'm listening to how it's affecting the patient's quality of life. And then also If a patient is telling you that this is not something that I can afford, I don't push that. Mm -hmm. And I respect that. And I say, okay, well, you know, it's something that we can certainly put on the back burner. If you have to choose one of the big three, this is the one that I would want you to focus on. And the other things we can maybe, you know, do like a makeshift at home, like a rice and a sock or something. And I know that, you know, somebody might be rolling their eyes at this thinking, okay, well, we've moved very far away from warm compresses and rice and sock. However, if this is what fits my patient's lifestyle and their and their ability, their financial ability right now, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. And then eventually we'll start talking about in-office treatments. And, and I will say that, you know, to your point, patients will, when I offer the in-office treatments to them, most of my patients want to think about it. 
they don't sign up for the treatments the same day. And I don't have very many patients and especially based on my demographic. And I respect that. And I will tell them, I think that's completely okay. I actually want you to think about this. And I encourage them to bring in somebody, um, a family member, a friend or someone who can advocate for them. And the way I explain it to them is, you know, next time we're going to talk a lot about your dry eye and about the treatment options. And I want you to have somebody who can support you so I want someone here who has, you can have a second pair of ears and then that way you can discuss it when you get home too. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, those are great tips. Mm-hmm. That, that really mm-hmm. helps. Thank you. Yes, of course. I will say too, I have told people to take a potato, put it in the oven and then use a warm wash or like use a clean washcloth over it because they don't have a microwave or yeah. No. Yeah. Or they don't have a, or they don't have an oven or they don't mm-hmm. have different things. And so I have to be creative because up here there's definitely a range with what people, yeah. how people live. Yeah. And that's true. exactly it. And as practitioners, you know, we have to stay within our boundaries as well mm-hmm. in the sense mm-hmm. that we do have to respect that. And I love that word that you have to get creative mm-hmm. um, because it's very true in certain areas and certain geographical areas. Um, you know, I have a ton of patients who don't have microwaves or they don't want to use them um, mm. because they're concerned about um, negative effects of using a microwave. And mm. no matter how much I will talk to them about, well, you're not ingesting any of this, right? Mm. So there may not be necessarily the same negative consequences of using a microwave. It's just a way of life for them. So mm-hmm. if you're not going to uh, accommodate your suggestions based on the patient's way of life, in my experience, that patient is not motivated to come back. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 100% really true. true. So getting clinical staff um, on board with what is recommended for dry care is an important step of building a dry practice. So what are your tips on educating the staff? So my, I think most valuable tip would be to train a dry eye counselor, like someone who is a mini you, someone who understands the disease process, someone who can interpret the testing, the myography, and then actually communicate and talk to the patient about the myography, for example, or interpret a TL's molarity result, or what does the MMP9 mean when it's positive? Um, And it it really helps save time and it helps you be more efficient, but also the patient, from a patient perspective, it really hones into the patient why this is important. You know, they've heard the education from the staff member, they've now heard it from the doctor, they're hearing it from the staff member a second time, this must be a disease process that I have to focus on. That's kind of what the process, thought process the patient is having. Um, So the way that I would recommend you do that is start by doing maybe like a monthly meeting and educate all the staff. You might think that the front desk is not involved, but yes, they are. And I will tell you how. So you start by educating everybody. um, And then if you're bringing in in office equipment, you might even demonstrate, for example, let's say it's an eyelash or a lipoflow, you might use a, a staff member who has pre-existing dry eye and you might do like a, a workup for that patient. Do their myography patient, right? So do their myography, do their TLS molarity, their MMP9 testing, and then run the treatment on them and then have them talk to the other staff members about what the treatment felt like for them. So what their experience was. And hopefully it was a positive experience because then that staff member can talk to the patients about that and say, well, (laughs) I've had this done. I only had it in my right eye and I can really feel a difference or whatever the situation might be. Um, And that's the same for your products that you sell in the office as well. And then I, you know, I take our omega-3s because I myself have my bone gland dysfunction. And so I can talk from a personal experience what 
how I feel when I take those, those um, omega-3s. Um, so I would, I would have the staff involved in that. And the way that you can have your front desk staff involved is when you're making appointments, when they're making appointments with you, you could say, well, you know, we have Dr. So-and-so who is a specialist in dry eye. Are you having symptoms of X, Y, Z, burning, tearing, itching? Would you like to make an appointment with our dry eye specialist? So that's a way that you can get the, the front desk staff involved. When the patient is checking out, the front desk staff is also involved because they're selling those products to the patient. So mm-hmm. they can ask, well, did the dry eye specialist, Dr. So-and-so recommend hypochlorous acid for your bacteria? You know, whatever it might be, right? Something that doesn't offend our HIPAA rules, but at the same time allows the front desk staff to be involved. Um, when the patient is roomed and waiting for me to go in, I have actually a staff member go in first and I have them talk about the myography results and all the other testing that we did. Then I go in, now the patient's primed. Now they have an idea of what my bony gland dysfunction is or whatever it might be. Then I go in and I take the sit lamp pictures and then I will reiterate the myography findings and then talk about how the anterior segment pictures will relate to the myography findings, right? So let's say that you're taking pictures of the demodex blephritis and the patient has ocular rosacea. So you're kind of tying all that information together, but it's not taking you 20 minutes to do so because the patient's already been primed. And take that further, then I will talk to the patient about their treatment options. And then when I leave the room, that same staff member talks to the patient about their treatment options. Do they have any questions? Can we get you scheduled? Are there any financial plan options that are available for payments for patients? When should they come back? Things like that, right? And then that in that case, then I've moved on to the next patient. So not only does it help from an efficiency standpoint, but you are also helping that patient understand because they've, they've heard it from multiple people. Now, some of my patients, you know, if I've not done a good job of building their trust at the first visit, they feel more comfortable asking questions to my staff. I don't know if maybe you've experienced that and maybe you have. Um, so it allows, it, it just give it allows another opportunity, another avenue for that patient to have their questions answered. Or maybe they just forgot to ask you a question and you've already left the room. And that way there's almost like a safety net for that patient. If the patient calls back after the visit, the staff knows that the dry eye counselor is the person that they should route all of that, those questions to. And then if there's, if there are questions that only I can answer, I don't have five people coming at me with questions. I have one dry eye counselor, everything's funneled to her, and then she relays the questions to me. So it kind of streamlines that communication. So I think that would be um, my, my, my most valuable suggestion. Are you doing that? Is extremely efficient, by the way. Yes. Are you doing all of this workup like for every like regular eye exam, or is this like specific dry eye follow up appointments that you just have set up on a day? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, when a patient is coming in for all of this testing, it's a specific dry eye evaluation. Okay. However, every patient is receiving a validated dry eye questionnaire at every single visit, regardless of what they're coming in for. And that's my screening. That's how I screen the patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. How did you educate your dry eye counselor? Like, and how did you find out or how did you figure out who that should be within your staff? Um, so 
the way that I figured it out was when we had our group meetings, there was essentially someone who really felt, um, who, who, was, who, who was a little bit more involved when it came to asking questions and was a little bit more involved when um, it came to understanding the pathophysiology and someone who was just showing interest. I think that's really important for somebody to actually be genuinely interested. Yeah. Otherwise, I think it could become very boring. Imagine <laughs> if, you know, I mean, right now, especially when we start off, we're talking to warm about warm compressors to every single patient, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. it, it's very cumbersome and very time consuming on us. So the patient, the, the person does have to be passionate somewhat about it or genuinely interested. Yeah. And then I had her observe me for a month, every single day on every single encounter, dry eye encounter. Um, and if there were any, we did training sessions, if there are any questions. So I had one-on-one -on -one training sessions with this person talking to her about my biography. Uh, she picked up a lot during the exam as well, right? And how I, how I talk about atrophy and truncation and dilation of the mimomian glands. And she just picked up on it from there and her genuine interest really propelled her forwards. Awesome. Okay. Cool. And then for anyone who doesn't have a dry eye counselor, handy in their clinic, are there any other recommended templates that uh, that ODs can use to create dry eye handouts or dry eye pamphlets, um, anything that you would recommend? So I made my own mm -hmm. based on the kind of research and, and information that uh, I had available to me. And that's what I would recommend because you know your patient demographic best. And so, you know, we were talking earlier, right, before we hit record that my patients don't really, they're not very tech savvy, they don't really do emails and text messages and, and they don't really respond to those things, whereas your patients might. So you might do like a, an email blast to patients about like your, you know, Dr. Kataria's top five tips for the week on how to take care of your eyelash extensions. I think that those can be very valuable. Have those patients follow you on social media, start an, an educational account um, for the general consumer. Um, and then you can also use the stock images, for example, from Johnson & Johnson to help you with un, uh, explaining your biography results, for example, for patients. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there are great images out there for grading SPK. So you can talk to the patient about, you know, how that represents skin sloughing off the front of the eye and how that's akin to dry skin during the winter. Um, and so patients really understand analogies like that. So I think those things can be helpful. Creating your own videos for patient education, whether that's you know, during the patient exam or before the patient leaves, maybe you do those in the waiting area instead of, you know, playing like the news, uh, that, that can be helpful too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We actually have monitors that we have our VA charts on as well. And so, I mean, personally in my practice, I was thinking while you were talking that I could project it on there and then, mm -hmm. you know, during when they're waiting for me, cause sometimes they wait five minutes, sometimes they wait 30 minutes. It just kind of <laughs> depends on how many emergencies that pop in, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's a Why good idea too. On that time, instead of the patient being on their phone, mm -hmm. and even if they are on their phone, at least they have the audio going. Mm -hmm. um, and YouTube has some cute cartoons, like for Blefx, for example, the Blefx, the, the company um, has, has a cute little uh, animation video and there's closed captioning. So you can play it in a different language. Um, that Ooh, can be really helpful. Awesome. Um, and then there are demonstrations that other eye doctors have done on YouTube 
uh, mm-hmm. educational videos, you might, you know, email them and say, hey, do you think I'd be able to use this in my clinic? And so those, those, those tools can be very helpful, I think. Yeah. Um, Dr. Kataria, you answered all of our questions based on how to build a dry eye practice. And I think um, this was amazing information that you shared. And I actually, as you were talking about all of the stuff to help dry eye practices, I'm taking all your information down so that this can apply to a BV practice for me too. So I feel like half the information that you're saying is very applicable to all ODs for any sort of specialty, right? Of how to really get involved and get those patients on your side and bring them into your clinic. Um, so is there any final thoughts or any other tips that you want to mention that we haven't really brought up yet? I I do want to talk about the validated dry eye questions. I think that's a very easy thing to implement starting today. Um, (laughs) I think that you can find these online. Uh, That gives you an idea of how I do things, right? Do it now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you can Google those and um, you can print them out and start having your patients fill those out, whether that's something that you upload onto your website during your intake forms or you email those or just patients fill them out as they're waiting for you. And that can really be a very helpful screening tool for you to understand how many dry eye patients you have in your practice to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so we say about one in two, so half of patients will have some sort of symptom of dry eye um, that needs to be addressed. So that's what that's kind of the gauge that you should be using in your clinic. So if one out of two patients are coming in complaining of dry eye, you should be addressing dry eye. So whether that's you yourself or whether you're sending that to somebody else, um, because this is this problem is getting worse. And so I think that we are poised perfectly to start addressing this uh, issue for our patients. And, and really that's it. It's easy to get going with it, I think. Yeah. I think, I guess I can add maybe one more tip to how to yeah. build your referral base for dry eyes. Now that you mentioned it's getting worse, there are so many pediatric patients getting dry eye because of screen time too. And parents are bringing them in because they're very concerned that, you know, little Timmy is blinking so much when he's playing on his iPad. Like he's just, you know, a lot of these kids I've noticed are getting, um, they're just blinking very, um, like with an uneven pattern and parents are getting really nervous. And to be honest, it's, it's dry eyes. Dry eyes are really common now because kids are doing a lot of online work. So even reaching out to like pediatricians, parent um, forums and groups, that might be a great way to bring in those pediatric dry eye patients too. And then that educates the parents who also have dry eyes. And then they're like, oh, it's not just my kid. I think I have it too. Let me talk about this with my doctor too. So that kind of yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think in terms of the treatment world, we're definitely starting to see, um, you know, it's obviously hard, right, to do studies on on children, but mm-hmm. we're definitely starting to see the data, this observational data um, that, you know, myobomine gland dysfunction, for example, that is, you know, associated with, with screen time in children. And there are, you know, good options. You know, we have pediatric dosing for omega-3 liquid, for example, mm-hmm. so that they're not having to take those huge pills. Um, and just like you said, easy things like blinking, educational tips that we can give our parents um, mm-hmm. to, to help children stay ahead of it, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Kataria, for joining us. We're so happy that um, you joined back on after such a long time. And it's nice to see you after a while because we've all kind of grown and we just got to kind of catch up behind the scenes, which was fun. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I think you guys are doing an amazing, amazing job with the podcast. I really love listening to all the episodes thank and you. just thanks for having me. And I really loved catching up with you all as well. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned. Stay tuned.